before we look at the passage this morning, I just want to make, uh, just draw your attention to a couple things. One, as has already been mentioned, uh, there's a toolbox in the foyer uh, for beginnings. And in the past couple years, uh, or actually longer than that, we've taken part in uh, baby bottle drives and we've filled baby bottles with change and with cash. So this is sort of a replacement for that this year. We didn't do the baby bottle drive. So if you have lots of change or if you have cash or the toolbox will actually take checks or whatever you want to put in there, uh, we want to be generous. We really want to support uh, this work of beginnings. Also, this is the last Sunday I'm going to be here uh, for two weeks. Uh, next Saturday, I'm going down to uh, speak at a camp in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's actually a boys' camp. And what that meant to me, or what that actually means, uh, just occurred to me like two days ago. Uh, I'm used to going and speaking at conferences. I don't mind doing that. And this group, though, it's uh, they have three age divisions. Uh, Grades 3 to 5, grades 6 to 8, and grades 9 through 11. And so in the morning, my, my day looks like this. I have to get up early, do staff devotions. Then there's a camp-wide chapel before breakfast that I need to speak at. Then their Bible teaching is sort of one of their stations. So I have, it, it's a one-hour slot. Apparently, I don't need to speak for an hour, uh, although I probably will. Uh, and so there's, there's a one-hour slot for each one of these three groups. And it occurred to me, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> like, like, I can talk for an hour, but not effectively to children. And so what really frightened me, actually, is someone that I, I phoned for advice uh, used, used the word kids ministry. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is what this is. Like, this is kids ministry. And I'm the least qualified person on the planet to be doing this. So if you could be in prayer uh, for myself and for these kids, I quite literally don't know what I'm doing. Like my plan, which is being revised uh, this week, was I was just going to take down my uh, systematic theology notes from the college and dumb it down. Like that was, I was going to, so instead of saying, you know, God's omnipotent, I was going to say something like God is omnipotent. It's the pronunciation that kids struggle with. So anyway, so you can be in prayer for that. Then uh, a week from Saturday, I have to drive back and I'm speaking at Elam Lodge uh, family conference, so two adults for the following week. So two weeks I'll be away. Uh, Jake's preaching next week, I believe, and then Pastor Sam is going to be the week after for communion. Okay, let's read the passage. First uh, Kings chapter 8. Uh, we'll read 20, verses 22 through 61. Then we'll go back through it. This is a prayer of Solomon uh, dedicating the temple, and so it should not just be uh, read through, it ought to be sort of prayed through. This is the Word of God. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. 
Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath, then they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple. Then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they have done, and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people, Israel, have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts, and spreading out their hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away or near and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you, 
with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servants' plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, sovereign Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he, as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him and to keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Before we start walking through this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we... We learn to pray in part by uh, experience and in part by reading your word and seeing how others have prayed to you. So we would ask this morning, Lord, that you would enable us to understand uh, this prayer of Solomon at this moment in uh, Israel's history and that you will teach us how to pray that you will teach us uh, wisdom and priorities uh, that are honoring to you. Father, we would ask that uh, you would uh, crown the day with blessing. Uh, we, ask, we would ask that you would uh, enrich our lives uh, with joy today so that we may joyfully return praise to you. And yet, whatever our circumstances, whatever you call us to today, uh, we ask that you will give us the daily grace that we require to move through every moment in a way which is pleasing and honoring to you. Lord, we would ask that you would bless us so that we will be a people who are empowered and enabled spiritually and morally uh, to bless your name. We would ask that you would forgive us for our sins. Uh, we would ask that you would uh, forgive us for uh, all of our selfishness and uh, lack of love in so many ways. Uh, we would ask that you would forgive us for uh, continuing uh, shamefully 
to act as if uh, we ourselves are the center of the universe and that everything else and everyone else and even you are supposed to revolve around us. We would pray that you will bring us into proper alignment so we can see who we are in relationship to you and others and the rest of creation. And then by your spirit, we would ask that you would help us to walk in that path and to walk well until you call us home until, or until your son returns. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, this uh, chapter, chapter 8 here in 1 Kings, uh, really is the theological center of First and Second Kings. This is a, an extremely important passage in terms of what God is doing with Israel. Solomon has finally completed the temple. And here, in the first uh, 20 verses of the text, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. There's an enormous amount of praise and, and sacrifices are offered. People are celebrating the Lord's goodness. They're celebrating His presence with them. Now, rather than having the tabernacle, which was uh, a movable tent, it was a movable residence for God in the desert. And the reason it was portable, of course, was because the people were moving. And so the tabernacle, uh, which we talked about a number of months ago, uh, you may recall, was established so that God would put his name right in the middle of the camp. And as Israel was led by the Lord to different locations, uh, the Levites, some of the Levites would pack up the tabernacle very carefully and all the accoutrements therein and move to the next location where they'd set it up. So the Lord was camping with his people. And this is actually, um, I, I use this word in, in an older sense. Uh, this, this is incredible condescension of God. Uh, to be condescending today uh, has this very negative sort of connotation to it. You're sort of looking down at someone or you're, you're being patronizing. But in an older sense, in a proper sense, condescending just meant that you would sort of uh, stoop down to accommodate someone on their level. And so if you read any sort of older books of theology, you'll, you'll come across this term all the time, the, great, the, the condescension of Christ, that he would leave heaven to be born in a manger. And all they're saying is that he's, he's, accommodating, he's accommodating himself. He's acting with, with holy humility to reach us where we're at. God, quite literally, camps with his people in the wilderness for 40 years. But now there's a temple that's been built. Now there's a home, a permanent structure. And the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the Holy Holies. In verse 10 of chapter 8, it says, The priest withdrew from the holy place, or when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. This is just like in Exodus 40. At the end of Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is finally completed, the glory cloud of God moves in, showing that God has taken up residence and no one can go inside and work for a while. The exact same thing happens here. What's, what you're being shown is that God has now sort of vacated the tabernacle and he has now taken up residence in the temple. It is his home. Solomon then rehearses some history for the people, reminding them of the goodness of God. And this is actually something very helpful. Even that song that we sang, uh, Here I Raise uh, My Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of remembrance. And uh, the idea, when you come across you know, Ebenezer in Scripture, is that a stone of remembrance is set up, This far has the Lord helped me. And so to remember, to rehearse your history sometimes... 
God has brought me through all of these things. Not always pleasant. Sometimes awfully difficult, actually. But God has brought me through. This far, he has helped me. And I said, I established this pillar in my life. God has been my help and my rock from the beginning until now. He will remain faithful no matter what the future holds. No matter what people do to me. No matter what I do, God is my rock. He is my help. He has helped me till now. Sometimes we need to take stock of where we are in the present and remember the past in order to have a light into terms of how we're supposed to move into the future. And so that's what Solomon is doing. He reminds the people of their history. And then he begins to pray. And in his prayer, which I don't have time to, to go through every phrase, obviously. We, we've read it. Um, and there are some certain themes that come up again and again and again. But the one that he begins with is simply this. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you. That actually, in a sense, is almost all you really need to know about God. In a sense. There just isn't anyone else. There's just no God like him. You get this here, you get this in Isaiah. Isaiah is, is frequently saying, you know, there is, there is no one like him. Who is like, the Lord reveals him, who is like me? I am the Lord. There is none other. All the other gods are cheats. You know, all the other gods are lies. Only the Lord has a mighty arm. Only the Lord has wisdom. Only the Lord uh, is real. Only God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. And that's what Solomon says next. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to, my, to your servant David. Solomon is doing here, he's reminding the people in prayer, he's praising God, of that Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That God promised David, that God would build a household for David. David had said, I'll, I'll build God a house, that is a temple. And then uh, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to come and say, no, no, David, God's going to build you a house, meaning a household, a family dynasty, uh, a lineage where a son will always reign. And so God makes this promise. And as Solomon, the first son of David who's on the throne, considers the enormous magnitude of this promise that God has made, he, it's almost like it's too overwhelming to believe, so he needs to remind himself of the promise-keeping nature of God as revealed in the past. Lord, there is no God like you. You make promises, you enter into covenants, and then you fulfill them. You uphold all of your promises. Verse 25, Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. You see, what, what Solomon is doing here is something that we can do as well and ought to. Solomon is clinging to the promises of God and coming into the presence of God saying, you said you would do this. Now, this is not 
on Father's Day to be considered analogous to the father in the Saturday afternoon lying on the couch watching the World Cup and the kids are coming up saying, Daddy, you, you promised you'd take us to the park. And the father says, it's hot, let's go later. You know, or, or a little later the kid comes back, Daddy, you said you'd do this. You said, well, you, I will, I will, just, just, just give me a moment. You know, it, it's not this sort of, uh, we have to go and pester God. You know, we don't need to go and nag God. God, do this, do this, you said, you said, you said, and he keeps putting us off. What Solomon is doing is he's coming confidently into the presence of his father because he knows that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He, he doesn't need to pester God over this. He doesn't need to nag God over this. But he does come with respect and awe into the presence of God the Father. Say, God, you, you promised you would do this. Here is a a high and holy thing that you have said you will do. God, fulfill it. Be, be faithful to this promise that you have made. Since what he's doing is, is he's aligning himself with the purposes and promises of God. He's coming to, into God's presence saying, God, you've said you, you will do this, and I know you will, and I want you to. I want you to uphold your word. I want you to be faithful to your promises. Your, your promises are greater than I could possibly imagine. And I, I almost can't bring myself to believe that they're true, except that your, co- your, your covenant-keeping character has been revealed through century after century after century. You are so good. And you continue to make promises and give us grace that we don't deserve. And so, Father, I come into your presence respectfully and in awe to adore you and to say, do what you've said. There's a sense which is is just adding our little tiny amen to the promise of God. God says, I'm going to do this. And we say, amen. Do it, Lord. Yes, that's what we want you to do. That's better than we could have imagined. We could never have come up with that. And as we were working through 2 Samuel 7, you may recall that that promise to David. But having a son who will reign forever is ultimately fulfilled not by Solomon. Certainly not by Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who's going to be responsible for splitting the kingdom. Not through anyone who actually has a natural father in the Davidic line. The fulfillment of this great seed, the great son of David, is also going to be David's Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise that David will always have a son who reigns on the throne. And you can imagine here Solomon, not knowing that, not seeing how it was all going to work out. Even Solomon could praise God for the little bit that he saw here. Lord, this promise is so wonderful. This covenant is so incredible that you would do this for people like us. You remember David's response was, Lord, who am I? Why would you do this for me? Why would you do this for my family? We are nothing and you are God. And here Solomon is saying, Lord, there is no one like you. And yet you've entered into this covenant with us Do it, yes, amen, even though we don't deserve it. And for us, 
This side of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This side of the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Where everyone in the new covenant community knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. Where everyone in the new covenant community has had their sins forgiven. Where there is salvation through the death, life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the covenant promises that we have. That there is eternal life for all who are united with Christ. That's what we know. It, it, it makes it seem like Solomon knew nothing in comparison. In a very real sense, he didn't. Compared to where we stand this side of Pentecost. And so we come into the presence of God and we say, God, you've promised that all who put their faith in Christ will be saved. Thank you. Be faithful to that promise. Lord, you have promised that there is eternal life for all who are united with Christ. Unite me with Christ and keep that promise. You, 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 have, you have promised that, that, that the Son will lose none that you have given him. Uh, give me to him and keep that promise so that I can't be lost on the last day. Lord Jesus, you have promised uh, that you will be with us always to the very end of the age. Keep that promise. Uh, you have promised, Lord, that your glory will be all over the world. Keep that promise. And oh, Lord, you have promised that your son is coming back. That one day this fallen world that's, that's plagued by sin and the curse, that one day it will be purified, that one day you're going to gather in the whole number of your children. And not only will, will you forgive them for their sins, you will purify them finally from their sins so that they will never sin again. Not only the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, that is credited to them and covering them, but also on that great day, totally transformed into the righteousness of Christ. So that it's our covering, it's our legal status, but in the new heavens and new earth, it's also our character. He's actually going to make us like Jesus. So that it, it would, and I say this, I say this reverently and almost impossibly, except that it's a promise of God that, that in glory we will be so transformed that it will be impossible for us to sin. Not only will we not sin, we won't be able to sin. Because of the power of God's transforming work in our hearts. And, and if you know anything about your own heart, that has to seem like an impossibility right now, today. And so you go back to the covenant-making, covenant-keeping character of God. God, you can do more than I can ask or even imagine. Do this in me. Solomon goes on to pray in verse 27, Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. At verse 29, you said my name shall be there. This brings in two of the, the characteristics of God which, which always need to be held together. They need to be held together uh, in our Christian experience. They need to be held together in, in, sort of in systematic theology when we're trying to understand God. 
Uh, it's very important. There, there are massive errors, sort of theoretically and also practically, if you don't balance these two things. And, and the two things I'm referring to are the, the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. That is, he is high above us, but he is also intimately close with us. Some people try to cultivate a relationship with God where they focus so much on his closeness that they begin to lose the fact that he's not just our buddy. He is a high and awesome and holy God. There is no one like him. And so to just sort of have God as, as you know, my father, he loves me, uh, I'm his friend, uh, you know, he calls me friend, and uh, okay. But God's a lot more than that. On the other hand, there are some people who in their theology, God is so enormous that they really don't seem to have, they can't sort of connect with him. He, he becomes an unknowable being. You know, he's just so far beyond, beyond us that we can't talk about him. We can't think about him. We can't understand him. And, and that's, an, that's an equal and opposite error. We can know God because we are created in his image and he has revealed himself to us. He has made us to know him. And, he, he, and he's effective in what he makes. So if he wants to make beings who can know him, he's able to do that successfully. And so he has made us so we are able to know him. He's given us a gift of language that language can actually, despite postmodern theory, language can actually communicate truth. Why? Precisely because it's not a human invention. If language really did sort of emerge out of an evolving sort of biological group of beings you wouldn't have any confidence that it actually refers. But human beings are not the first beings in the universe that speak. God is. Genesis 1. And so the very fact of the matter is that language comes from God. God knows how to communicate. God is powerful in all that he does. That's why his word is powerful. And so, the fact that God speaks and there is communication in the Trinity is what gives us a right to believe that language can communicate from one human being to another as well. We can actually know God. And so, we hold these things together. In one sense, God is categorically different from everything else imaginable. He is utterly transcendent and immense. Even the highest heavens cannot contain him. Yet he dwells with the broken and the contrite in spirit. In one sense, he is infinitely far above and beyond you. And in another sense, he is infinitely tucked into the very nature of your being. He is right with you. He, he, he is the atmosphere in which we live and move and have our being. There is no one who is greater, there is no one who is closer. There, there is no one who is more immense. There is no one who is more present. It's an amazing thing, this, this God. I, I suspect we still have a lot more to learn about him. Solomon then, for uh, a number of paragraphs here, 
prays in, in line with Deuteronomy 28, which is the chapter where there are all of these covenant curses pronounced for disobedience. And what Solomon is doing through these chapters, or through, rather through these paragraphs, is he's returning to this theme that the people are going to sin, but God in his mercy even after he brings consequences into their lives in light of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28, God in his mercy is not writing them off for good. In fact, you'll get to uh, the place where there's this climactic, the climactic curse was going to be exile. You're going to go, I'm going to remove you from this good land where I've brought you. But even in exile, there's the possibility for repentance and restoration. It really, in a sense, has nothing to do with the goodness of the people. It has everything to do with the grace of God. That's one of the macro-level lessons of the Old Testament. Uh, If you work through it carefully, there will be about a thousand places where you stop and you say, if I didn't know how the story ended, I'd be pretty sure that God would stop it right here. How can God keep putting up with this? Surely this is the time when God is going to say, enough, you're done, I'm done. But he never does. He never does. He is so patient. It is utterly mind-boggling. It's an incredible thing. So the people will sin, they'll experience the consequences of the covenant curses, but God will change their hearts, they'll humble themselves, and they'll be shown mercy and forgiveness. Verse 41 teaches something actually very interesting. I just wanted to draw your attention to this. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. This is very interesting. Ethnicity has never given you access to God. Even when God chose to work with the nation of Israel, foreigners were always welcome. In fact, there are in the law, there are commands. Make sure you treat the sojourner, the stranger, or the alien, or the foreigner among you well. You know what it's like to be a foreigner in a strange land. You know what that's like to be poor and oppressed. So when these people are in your land, you make sure you take care of them. And I am not going to be political. I'm not. I'm not. And I'm, I'm not even going to be theological about this. This is a big discussion. Pardon, Bob? However, (laughs) however, it is worth thinking through in our global state with the nation of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament was always supposed to be a nation with open borders to welcome in foreigners so they could see the greatness of God. That's what they were commanded to do in the law. Israel was supposed to be a place 
where foreigners were welcome to live so that people could see the greatness of God. I say that, I move on. At the very end of this prayer, verse 52, May your eyes be open to your servants' plea and to the plea of your people Israel, and may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared to your servant Moses when you, sovereign Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. What are these promises, sorry, what is this prayer really based on? This, this prayer for for covenant fulfillment, this prayer for blessing, this prayer for forgiveness. What's it based on? It's based on redemption. The very end, all of this is tied to the fact that God has redeemed his people. Lord, you brought your people out of Egypt. You've redeemed them. You've already had substitutionary blood cover them from death. And with an amazing outstretched arm and mighty power, you defeated all of the gods of the superpower of the day, showing that you alone are Lord, so that everyone would know you. And that's the heart of the prayer. And this really should be the heart of our prayers too many times. Lord, you've redeemed us. So make us into the people we ought to be so that everyone else will know how great you are. It's not about our comfort. It's not so we can be blessed so we can sit around and and tweet out that we're blessed. It's not so we have a great evangelical hashtag. So that we can actually honor God and show the world what it looks like to be the blood-bought, redeemed, blessed people of God. By nothing but His grace, His sovereign covenant making, and His faithful covenant keeping. Every little bit of which is undeserved by us. It is not through us. It is not upheld by our wisdom or goodness or power. It is all the sovereign work of a great and glorious God of whom there is no one else like in any way. Solomon finishes praying. And then he blesses the people. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. God had promised he'd bring them into the land and give them rest from their enemies on all sides. That's what they're experiencing. That itself is a picture of Sabbath rest that will be found in Christ. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. What a great great thing to say and it's true. Defy you. Point to one promise of God that's failed. Truthfully, family, part of our problem sometimes in our walk with God is that we we get upset with God for not fulfilling promises He never made. That is, we've cobbled together a view of God where we think he owes us certain things or if he loved us, he'd do certain things or he'd exempt us from certain things or he'd give us certain things or he'd arrange our lives in in various ways. Uh, Interestingly enough, always the ways that we just happen to think are best for us. And, and, And if he doesn't do that, then somehow he's not being faithful to us. No, 
God has never promised to give us everything we want. But he has never failed in any one of his actual promises. You go through his word, you see what he has promised, and those haven't failed. We may be disappointed that God hasn't done other things for us that we really want, but his promises have been upheld. May the Lord our God be with us, as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. That was a promise of God. Deuteronomy 31. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Just like Jesus, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and to keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. That's how he begins. That's how he ends. There is no one like you. May all the world know it. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Well, may God do that. May God turn our hearts to obey his commands so that people can see there is no one like him all around the world. Uh, here in Guelph, but also around the world. Uh, we, we must never, never, never forget that because even the highest heavens cannot contain God, it is always too small a thing for God to be praised by the number of people on earth who are praising his name. He always deserves more. Uh, he always he is worthy of more. It's a part of the, the great burden, which is never going to end until Christ returns, of, of Christ's followers, is we need to make sure that there is the maximal number of people on the face of the earth praising God as possible. And that requires going out to the world and teaching and training uh, people who can, who can go and multiply those efforts and teach and train others and, and getting the gospel into places. There, there are, it is impossible that there are still people on this in, alive in the world today who have never rejected the gospel because they've never even heard the gospel. How is that possible 2,000 years after Christ? How is that possible given all of the money that we have? How is that possible given the ease of global transport? It is nothing but a failure of will and priorities. That's what it is. We have decided not to evangelize the entire world. We've prioritized spending money in other areas. For the first time in human history, we could do it in one generation if we wanted to. It's a failure of will. We are not blessed to sit around and to feel blessed. We are blessed for the sake of the world so that everyone on earth will hear the gospel. May God forgive our failure to take that as seriously as we ought. And may he turn our hearts to his priorities. Blessed so that other people can know the great saving power of our God. This might sound really silly, and I don't mean it to. I'm glad that God has saved me. I think that if I had never heard the gospel, 
I would want someone to bring the gospel to me. Right? For those of you who, who, who know and love Jesus, what if, what if you'd never heard of him? Would you want someone to come and tell you about Jesus? I mean, it's, it's just so, so obvious, right? Okay, well, we're the ones who know. That's us. And there are probably about, there are probably about two billion people, and, and I'm not just throwing that as a rhetorical, but that's probably about the figure. There's probably about two billion, billion people on earth who haven't heard about Jesus. And they're not going to tell each other about him because they've never heard. So it's going to be us. And so we pray, but then we also give and we go. And we do everything we can in our responsibility before God to make sure that everyone on earth has the opportunity to know this God of whom there is no other. They can't be saved by their regional deities because their regional deities are nothing. There's only one God. There's only one Savior. We know Him. May God help us not to rest until everyone in the world has, has had the chance to know Him too.